Good morning. It's Thursday, the 30th of November, the last day of the month, and this is Govindraj Athiraj coming to you from Mumbai, India's financial capital. We're live from 6 a.m. in Mumbai, 8:30 a.m. in Singapore and Hong Kong. And our top stories and themes for the day: BSE listed firms cross four trillion dollars in market capitalization. Gold prices hit a new high. Oil soars ahead of an OPEC meet, and COP28 starts today. Legendary investor Charlie Munger of Berkshire Hathaway dies at 99. 155 million passengers will fly India's domestic airlines this year as airlines fight to increase capacity. And Walmart's US imports from India went from 2% to 25% in 5 years. This is a core report with Govindraj Athiraj. BSE listed firms hit 4 trillion dollars in market value. The Indian markets on Wednesday hit the historic 4 trillion market cap milestone for the first time. That's the BSE listed companies. India joins the United States, China and Japan and Hong Kong in this select club. The market value of some 5200 BSE listed companies is now at a record high of 333 trillion rupees, translating into about 4 trillion dollars. To put this figure in context, With a market capitalization of almost 48 trillion dollars, the United States is by far the world's largest equity markets, followed by China at about 9.7 trillion dollars and Japan at about 6 trillion dollars. According to Bloomberg data, India's market capitalization has risen nearly 15% so far this calendar year, even as China's has seen a 5% erosion, according to the Business Standard. The United States is the only market in the top 10 market capitalization club which has grown at a faster clip than India at 17%. The combined world market cap has grown 10% this year to 106 trillion dollars. So India's market cap gains this year are propelled largely by gains in the broader market that's the mid cap and the small cap stocks and stocks outside the top 100 now contribute 40% to the country's market capitalization and that's up from about 35% during the start of this financial year down in the trenches so to speak the bsc sensex rallied 728 points or 1.1% to end at about 66902 the nifty 50 closed meanwhile above the 20000 mark for the first time after more than 2 months at 20097 up 207 points So the 4 trillion mark is a good benchmark point to talk about where the broad market stands and whether we are overvalued or rightly valued at this time. To do that I reached out to veteran market analyst and investor and someone who tracks data very closely, G Chokalingam of Mumbai based Economics Research and I began by asking him how he was seeing the broad market and the data points that he was looking at. So consequence of two factors, one is macroeconomic front which is the 6% GDP growth, which is projected by almost all the global institutions, and that has given tremendous confidence to domestic investors. Though it might have failed encouraging the foreign money, but the domestic investors have got tremendous confidence. India being fastest to major economy in the world, and that has led to inflow of a lot of retail investors. In fact, this week we are likely to cross another theme for the market is that. the investor base is likely to be more than 15 crore within few days because every week the new investors registering on the bombay stock exchange is anywhere from 5 to 8 lakh in number every week and that is continuing for last 3 years in a row so that has resulted in all round rally in the markets so these are the two major contributing factors according to me 
for the market to tag $4 trillion. Right. And if you look at the way this is spread out in terms of the stocks that are getting higher valued, how are you seeing the distribution of flow and the distribution of wealth creation? Very interesting. In the last 30 years, I have not seen this kind of a concentrated rally in the small and mid caps. Since March 2020 low, if you remember 2020 March, our Indian market hit uh, very low due to the COVID pandemic. So I looked at from March 20 low and also year-on-year basis as well as year-to-date basis in 2023. In whatever time period you have taken, the outperformance of small and mid cap over Sensex and Nifty is phenomenal. This kind of outperformance we have not seen in the last 30 years. And anywhere from 60% to 400% has been the outperformance of small cap index over Nifty and Sensex since March 2020 low. Now, on the other end, if you look at the history, I look at the last 16 years of the behavior of these three type of indices, small cap, mid cap and Sensex. Consistently, every second, third year, this kind of Relative overvaluation by small and mid cap got corrected consistently. There are three insights which I got from analyzing these indices for the last 15 years. Coincidentally, this morning I updated myself. One, there are the years when Sensex falls, the small and mid cap fall much more. Point number two, when small cap and mid cap indices fall, it's not necessarily the Sensex has to fall. There are Times, Sensex remains steady, but small cap and mid cap have fallen. Third, as I said earlier, every second, third year, whenever the small cap, mid cap index rallied substantially more than Sensex, they fell down very badly. So these are the three insights you get from analyzing the data for the last 15, 16 years. So it invariably means, I don't know whether tomorrow or next month or next quarter, the small cap and mid cap have to crack. It's not only, you know, just history. History is only source of learning. It doesn't become a law. I understand that. But this historical evidence has got a solid logical foundation, which is simply the relative overvaluation. And not only that, another interesting insight is that all of us know whenever small cap, mid cap fall badly or whole market corrects, the DIs don't support aggressively the small and mid cap. Their first effort is to support only the index stocks, Nifty and Sensex and maybe then top 100, and then top 250. But today we have more than 4,000 stocks. So, consequently, nearly 4,000 stocks, other than the top 250 stocks, invariably suffer more due to the lack of support from the institution. Third, the reason which gives me fear, all of us know the kind of resource mobilized by IPOs. They are depleting the liquidity available in the system. Fourth, the valuation bubble. Unbelievable bubble. Because I have seen 2000.com bull, 2007 infra bull, but this bull run is across all the sectors and segments. You know, maybe except the large IT, you take any sector and segment, there is a massive bull run. And there are many micro cap companies. I looked at a company which has got to more than 1300 crore loan. The interest provision is just 30 lakh rupees in September quarter. And the stock has gone up by four times, five times from the bottom. So these are the three, four reasons, the relative valuation, the historical evidence, the valuation bubble, the lack of liquidity in the system due to the IPO, definitely this will be corrected. In fact, today may be a beginning of the day. It is too early to say, first time in the last several months or quarters I am seeing today, 
almost the declines and the advances as equal but sensex went up by 1% largely because of large cap stocks today doing better so that is going to be the futuristic in the short term right okay so you are saying that while we have achieved all this valuation growth it's also at 4 trillion dollars since it's almost like a magical figure that everyone was waiting for but it's also the note of caution i mean you're saying that this is really at the time we should be looking at the whole market more carefully rather than thinking that from 4 trillion it will go to 6 trillion or something like that there are two things i want to say that 4 trillion also partly to significant extent is because of ipo money mobilized may be less than 1 trillion rupee the money mobilized but a stake diluted through ipo is normally you know 20 30% so substantial part of the market cap upside significant part has come through the ipos also because on listing the entire market cap is added to the overall market cap that is one and second i am not very pessimistic about this sustainability or growth of this 4 trillion dollar further there is a chance that it might even grow partly through ipo partly through the organic growth but i am saying that the small and mid cap suffering and more than that are equal amount being contributed by the large cap stocks because if you look at a nifty one year forward pe is only around 21 times which is far more comfortable than many small and mid cap stocks trading at 42 90 pe so therefore the swap may happen, the small and mid-cap may suffer, but the large-cap might take off. This is what precisely happened in 2018 and 19. Almost the small-cap indices fell 25-30%, but Sensex went up by 30%. So that kind of situation can happen. Therefore, the $4 trillion might again continue to grow, provided there is no uncertainties from the election results, and provided the oil price doesn't shoot up to strong triple digit that's above $100 significantly per barrel. If these two things do not happen, then this $4 trillion can soon become a $5 trillion by end of 24 uh, December. Right. That's an optimistic note to end on. Thank you so much, Choka, for joining me. Thank you. Elsewhere, gold prices slipped back after hitting a record even as the dollar index declined to its lowest in three months on hopes, in turn, of the US Federal Reserve cutting interest rates next year. Gold futures for December expiry on the multi-commodity exchange closed higher at 62,419 per 10 grams, according to data on Bloomberg. It rose to an all-time high of 62,602 during the day. And all that signaling from the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries producers seem to have worked with Brent crude prices now rising above $82 a barrel, also nudged by the same expectations that the Fed may start cutting rates next year. An OPEC meeting is set to take place today and set policy for 2024. And this is also the day the United Nations Climate Change Conference or COP28 kicks off in Dubai. One of the aspects that people will look for is the language leaders will adopt on the transition from fossil fuels to renewable energy crucial to limiting long-term warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius as envisaged under the Paris Agreement. And also discussions on atmospheric methane, the second largest contributor to climate change which has received relatively little attention compared to carbon dioxide despite its potential warming impact. And there is much more including compensations for countries affected by climate change and climate financing. And we will bring you all of that or more from those deliberations as they kick off in coming days. Charlie Munger is no more. 
Charles Munger partner to legendary investor Warren Buffett for almost 60 years as they transformed Berkshire Hathaway Inc from a struggling textile maker into an investing behemoth has died at 99. The longtime resident of Los Angeles died in a California hospital the company said in a statement Berkshire Hathaway could not have been built to its present status without Charlie's inspiration wisdom and participation Warren Buffett said in a statement. A lawyer by training, Munger helped Buffett, who was seven years his junior, craft a philosophy of investing in companies for the long term, reported Bloomberg. Under their management, Berkshire averaged an annual gain of 20% from 1965 through to 2022, roughly twice the pace of the Standard & Poor's 500 index. And decades of those compounded returns made the pair billionaires, of course, and folk heroes to eroding investors all over the world, including in India. Munger was vice chairman of Berkshire and one of its biggest shareholders with stock valued at about 2.2 billion dollars and his overall net worth was about 2.6 billion dollars according to Forbes. It's terrific to have a partner who will say you're not thinking straight Buffett said of Munger seated next to him at Berkshire's 2002 meeting. It doesn't happen very often Munger interjected. Too many CEOs surround themselves with a bunch of sycophants disinclined to challenge their conclusions and biases Buffett added. as bloomberg quoted for his part munger said buffett benefited from having a talking foil who knew something and i think i have been very useful in that regard which meant that businesses with strong brands and pricing power munger nudged buffett into acquiring california confectioner sees candies in 1972 and the success of that deal buffett came to view sees as the prototype of a dream business inspired berkshire's 1 billion dollar investment in coca cola stock 15 years later Here is what Charlie Munger told CNBC in his last interview to the channel. Note his reference to wealth transfer to the next generation. Is there anything left on your bucket list? Anything you'd like to do? Well, that's an interesting question. I am so old and weak compared to what I was when I was 96 that I no longer want to catch a 200-pound tuna. It's just too goddamn much work. to get it in takes too much physical strength. So I don't know why I would have paid any amount to get you a 200-pound tuna when I was younger and never caught one. And now I, given the opportunity, I would just decline going. I won't even go out after them. There are things you give up with time. You're pretty active. You've got a busy social schedule. You're on Zoom. You have breakfasts and lunch. Well, lunch I like it that way. Yeah. That's my idea of a proper old age for me. And I didn't plan it. It just happened. Happened, I welcomed it. I, I am very good at recognizing unfair advantages. And I got unfair advantages in old age the way I got unfair advantages in non-old age. And when they came, I just grabbed them. Boom, boom, boom. Charlie Warren Buffett told me that a long long time ago you told him he should live his life he should write his obituary the way he wants it written and then live his life accordingly. Yeah, sure. I I assume you've done the same thing for yourself. Well, no, I've written my obituary the way I've lived my life and if you want to pay attention to it is all right with me and if they want to ignore it that's okay with me too I'll be dead but what difference will it make? And so It's not a bad idea. Listen, Warren and I both live in the same house for decade after decade after decade. All our friends get rich and build better, bigger and better houses. 
and naturally we can we both considered bigger and better houses. And I had a huge number of children, so it was justifiable even. And I still decided not to live a life where I looked like the Duke of Westchester or something. And I, I was going to avoid it. I did it on purpose. Why? I didn't think it would be good for the children. That it would spoil them? Well, in a rich family, you think your duty is to use the wealth to live grandly. That's what everybody's doing with the money. You will learn from the people that are doing it. Is the plan for your life, the obituary you would write in your 30s, the same you would write today? Sure. I, I basically believe in the, in the soldier on system. Mm-hmm. Lots of hardship will come, and you've got to handle it well by soldiering through. And lots of, a few rare opportunities will come. You've got to learn how to recognize them when they come and not they make too minor a trip to the bike counter when the opportunity is available. And those are simple lessons. And we have a special interview with veteran long-term investor Ramesh Damani coming up tomorrow. Damani is amongst the few long-term Indian investors who've imbibed and spread the Buffett-Munger philosophy of investing through their words and actions over the decades and, of course, have had the opportunity to spend time with the pair in Omaha. That long interview is coming up tomorrow and don't forget to tune in. And here is an excerpt. I met him many years after I started following him. I've been following him almost since I was in college. I had first heard of a company called Berkshire in 77 when I went to America. The price was maybe $75 at that time. And over the years, I've come to realize what an instrumental part Charlie Munger was in the building of Berkshire. And I think the only tribute I can pay him is what historian Henry Adams told that a great teacher lives in eternity because you never know where his influence stops. I think Munger's influence on not only investment, but psychology, corporate governance, the China crisis, the Middle Eastern wars, is permanent and long-lasting. I think his influence will be felt, as the quote said, for many, many generations to come. So he has also been personally a very profound influence on my investing life, Govardhan. India's skies are full of action. Some 155 million passengers, 15% more than last year, will and have already taken to the skies this financial year on domestic flights, while some 70 million passengers will take international flights. Both these numbers will be new records, aviation advisory and research firm Kappa India has said. Meanwhile, some 150 aircraft are already grounded across Indian airports for various reasons ranging from financial troubles to engine problems and parts. And that figure, amazingly, is expected to go up to 200 by March end. So, of some 789 aircraft that will belong to Indian airlines, some 200, as I just mentioned, will be grounded, which means only about 588 will be operational by March next year. Thanks to which passenger load factors are holding and will continue to hold around 85%, a little higher than normal. So demand is strong, but supply in the near term is restricted despite efforts by airlines to lease more aircraft as they are. And for all the indignations about fares going up, yes, they do, but they only happen at some points. And we know that because overall yields for airlines are still a few percentage points lower and will be so by the end of the financial year. I caught up with Kapil Kaul, CEO of Kappa India, and I began by asking him how he was seeing the capacity and demand forces play out in the Indian aviation sector. So basically, when we started the air, it was about 130-odd planes, around 100-plus planes on ground. 
But the supply chain impact has been getting serious with Pratt & Whitney giving a guidance in one in July and then giving a further guidance in September. A consequence of that additional 900-odd GTF-powered 320s and 321s are getting impacted. And it's possible that at one point of time, 650 of them get impacted. And as we spoke last time, this is a result of you know, the contaminated powder metal that they found during the manufacturing. It requires the high-pressure turbine and high-pressure compressor discs to be extended and replaced. And that has its own time frame. So uh, it may overall to get all these engines back to operation may take over a year to two years. So the supply chain issues are pretty serious and the groundings that we estimate are largely related to Indigo because of the Pratt & Whitney issues. So I mean, Air India has the CFM-related challenges for the required engines and, and things like that, but there is more seriousness at the Indigo side. Right. And how is this affecting or how has it affected yields and which means the fares that people pay for flights and also the load factor, which obviously is a little higher than what it could have been? So first, I think the airlines are doing, especially Indigo, is, is wet leasing planes, is dry leasing planes, is extending leasing. So they are very keen to maintain their capacity guidance. Whatever is in their hand, they're doing and as a result of that, that in spite of these groundings, we don't see a material impact, at least till now, in terms of demand and overall projections till March 24, both on the domestic as well as international side. There may be a marginal impact, but not there, not much, because there's a lot of capacity coming of, let's say, Air India, Air India Express will bring 20, Air India itself is bringing 30, Vistara is bringing some planes, and even Indigo is, as I said, extending leasing getting some wet leases, getting dry leases, and they're also getting some aircraft from Airbus. So I don't see any material impact on, on the numbers and the capacity till now. As for the fares are concerned, we had a very excellent quarter one when we last spoke. Indigo had the, the highest profits as well, which was about 3,000 crores. But quickly, it normalized in quarter two, 12 to 14% dip in quarter two, in spite of the fact that the capacities in Q1 and Q2 were more or less similar. But the fares fell down, which is the traditionally weakest period, fell down by about 14%. So far till Diwali, we are seeing the fares equal and com you know, similar to the Q3 of FI23. So not marginal impact. And yes, you will see December fares going up closer today during Christmas and, and Diwali. But overall, I don't see it's going to be uh, majorly different from what we saw in quarter three of last fiscal. And quarter four of this fiscal is normally a weaker period. So overall, there may be a 3% dip or maybe 3% plus in terms of the yields from FI24 versus 23, which to my assessment, given the kind of aircraft that are on the ground, is not significant. You know, so to go back to the top number, so you've projected and I'm holding your projections, about 155 million passengers for 2024 in domestic and 70 million in international. But the domestic is growing over 15%. Yes, we expected it to grow to about 20%. We would expect it to be in excess of 15. We were expecting it to be 160 million plus. It'd go to 155. So it's range bound. And the international, we said 72 to 75, it'll be about around 70. And we expect most of these numbers to hold what we released in, in March 23. But obviously, there are so much uncertain factors that are there. It may play out differently, but pretty confident that it will be aligned to the numbers that we have shared. Right. And how does this compare to pre-COVID numbers? 
I think pre-COVID, the domestic was about 137 million and international was about 67 million. So we are way past the pre-COVID levels now. Yes. Okay. Now, between the two airlines, that's Air India and Indigo, in terms of aircraft on ground, they almost seem to be reaching the same level. Based on our assessment, Indigo would be about closer to 265 to 275. And Air India, by the end of this fiscal, more or less would be similar. So I think in terms of the operating fleet, but in terms of the fleet on AOP, you would be 360 plus for Indigo and about 300, closer to 300, 290 plus for Air India. So there'll be a substantial gap in terms of the fleet on register and their AOP, but the operating fleet more or less would be similar. So would this mean that this duopoly is now firmly in place as we go into calendar 24? Well, I think this is a reality of the market, frankly. Govind, the industry has been so fragmented in loss making. Having strong, well-capitalized airline is, will bring a lot of stability. And I think the way these guys are expanding, both of them, and I must tell you on record the kind of competitive intensity that you will see between these two players, route by route, region by region, across product lines, is going to be something that we haven't seen before. The expansion between them is, my assessment, about 700 odd planes, 650, 700 planes in five, six years. So in the near to medium term, this market concentration, I don't see creating any consumer challenge or competition challenge. But as we discussed it yesterday, that's important that we strengthen our consumer competition as well as industry structure, the institutional infrastructure, so that we have that in place, even though we may not require to test it because the number of planes they're getting will keep the competition pretty intense. As we go into 2024, what are the new trends or trends that you're seeing in terms of either route expansion, kind of aircraft, and essentially what could consumers or frequent or otherwise flyers experience that might be different from this or previous years? My think is the fares are getting normalized. You would see the fares getting normalized pretty soon from quarter four, both domestic and international, it may gradually become what we saw pre-COVID or closer to pre-COVID, but I think that trend is clear. That includes westbound? Uh, yes, across, across. And it will gradually come. It will not be because in westbound, you have a problem with Russian airspace, so United can't fly to SFO. They were planning two daily flights, so certain routes, certain markets will find the pressure. But overall, I think the international fares will start normalizing. And domestic, as you saw in quarter two, it got normalized. Up to Diwali, the fares were very, very modest. You know, we expect the fare normalization to begin in quarter four and be there in next fiscal as well. Second, I think the challenge would be the supply chain. Frankly, I don't know at this point of time if any India has a finger on it. That is to what's going to happen and will it deteriorate further or will strengthen. So that is a key area. But I think the other third part is the travel, both domestic and international, is continuing to be robust. People are wanting to travel more particularly for leisure. So business travel is resuming back to pre-COVID and domestic. We see the international business travel also coming back to pre-COVID. So overall demand will continue to be robust, but I don't see these fares holding up for long. It may start normalizing from quarter four. That's a wonderful spot of good news to end on. Kapil, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much. Thank you. Walmart steps up on imports from India. And before I go, a Reuters report has said that Walmart is now importing more goods to the United States from India and reducing its reliance upon China as it looks to cut costs and diversify its supply chain. 
The world's largest retailer shipped some 25% of its US imports from India between Jan and August this year, according to bill of lading figures shared by data firm Import Yeti with Reuters. Now that figure is quite big but quite startling if you compare with the fact that it was just 2% in 2018 or 5 years ago. Only 60% of its shipments, that is Walmart shipments, came from China during the same period, down from 80% in 2018, the same data shows. So while China is still bigger, it is becoming smaller and India is of course becoming bigger. Walmart has been stepping on the gas since 2018 when it bought a 77% stake in Indian e-commerce company Flipkart. Two years later, it committed to import $10 billion of goods from India each year by 2027 and is currently importing around $3 billion worth of goods from India every year, according to Reuters. That's it from me for today. See you tomorrow. Have a great day ahead. That was The Core Report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at The Core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter for our exclusive stories, one in-depth feature a day on www.thecore.in. Do also track us on LinkedIn, where we usually post synopses or extracts of our top stories and interviews. We would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant, including, of course, India's vibrant manufacturing sector. So write to us at feedback at the core.in. And thank you once again for listening. <laughs>